So we heard that the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, became flesh. That is human. And of course, we know that uh, the Word of God is Jesus. Our question today is how can Jesus be so human and so divine? In discovering this, we come to a passage which has all of the drama, the human emotion, but also a sense of Jesus' complete and utter control over a situation. And this contrasted, of course, with his human emotions. And it's the story of um, Mary and Martha and the death of their brother, Lazarus. And so we can find this in John chapter 11, and it spills over to John chapter 12, which is the sort of follow-up. Let me just recap. Jesus had good friends. They lived in Bethany, which is some miles from Jerusalem. We have a sense that he was able to go and visit them and hang out with them and gain some kind of rest, be looked after. While all around outside in the whole region of the south, the Pharisees, and yes, they're coming back into the story again, the Pharisees were doing all they could to plan Jesus' murder. Of course, by this stage, it was completely clear that they wanted rid. And so uh, Jesus, of course, removes himself over the Jordan. And uh, it's there that he gets the terrible news that Lazarus is ill. Now, we've seen that the Lord Jesus can heal remotely. He can... Uh, speak a word and there's healing he can um, take command of a situation that isn't right there under his nose or in his physical hands and so he tarries two extra days but he doesn't speak healing to Lazarus and his comment about Lazarus's illness and this is an interesting one at this time, is that it is for the glory of God. Well, of course, that provokes a few questions in our minds, doesn't it? How can suffering be to God's glory? Well, we don't always have an answer for that because different cases seem to be to have different outcomes. And the only way to view any kind of suffering for the believer is to see that everything always leads to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Well, here we are then, two days away from 
the death of Lazarus. And when Jesus is told about his death, again, his reaction is a bit strange. Uh, he isn't dead, but he's asleep. So I want to look on from there and to look at just two points. The first one is that it's clear that the Lord Jesus loves to his own physical risk. And secondly, that he is the resurrection. John chapter 11 verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister. How special and important this is. Jesus, word of God, son of man, had a passion and a love for this family. In verse 3 we hear, and we're going to look at the word love here. In verse 3 we hear that Jesus loved Lazarus. Lord, he whom you love is ill, Jesus is told. And that word in Greek is the kind of love that a parent might have for a child. It's kindly, it's patient, it might even be doting. It's affection. But in verse 5, the word that we hear, uh, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That word for love is that word that comes from agape. A divine love. A love that comes from God himself, the love that is in itself a moral choice, a loftier love, a less impulsive love. In other words then, Jesus loved. He loved this family as a father or as a family member with all the affection and all the uh, sense of joy in them that a parent might have for a child. But... He also loved them as God loves people with that moral sense. And so it's no surprise that Jesus weeps over Lazarus' death. But what that reveals about his humanity is absolutely amazing now it might be and obviously this is a you know very well known verse Jesus wept um, verse 35 of uh, chapter 11 we see that the Lord Jesus is uh, confronted with this crowd of people, weeping, wailing, bemoaning the fact that Lazarus is dead and has been dead for some time. And the overwhelming human tragedy of death is right there. Now it could be that this makes Jesus weep. It could be just that he knows what death is about, that he has a sense, an impending sense of what death is. But what's for sure is that at the heart of that lament, that sadness in Jesus, is his love 
for his friend and his love for the whole family actually in their time of grief we are told aren't we to weep with those that weep and I think often I've heard Christians trying to console one another um, by saying well this is for a reason or um, and 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 it is um, but often taking a sort of a, a high ground in the face of suffering and this can this can be very unsympathetic at times and sometimes it's appropriate that we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn and we uh, rejoice with those who rejoice that that um, sense of empathy it is I feel heightened in Christians I don't know if you've ever prayed for someone who's ill uh, or visited someone who is bereaved and uh, it's it it moves you to tears it's we 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 feel with those who feel sadness and it's appropriate we do so actually because Jesus is all about connections and communication and community just as an aside um, in still in Middle Eastern countries and countries around the world it's fairly normal for uh, people who aren't really connected with a death to gather round and to sort of work themselves up into this you know sort of raging emotional uh, output and there's something quite cathartic about it for um, for families who are who are bereft and it's clear that they were there in Bethany at this time uh, that that's just an aside but does this show us that as humans we we need to feel and we need others to feel with us we are simple and we're needy we crave love and sometimes we bind ourselves up in our need to be loved and actually bring a sort of uh, self-destruction but and here it is God's love for us is an everlasting love a considered love a pure love and once we grasp that this helps us with our sense of identity that we are loved by the one who loves in all the ways that are possible who loves us with that fatherly love and who loves us with a godly love that can actually give us roots and a sense of identity which can't easily be shaken in hard times this should carry us through the deepest times of self-doubt and isolation and we know something of that in these days don't we and yes we are loved in a human way the human way that Jesus the word made flesh loves us with human passion and warmth Mary Martha and brother Lazarus had spent time with Jesus they'd eaten together with him they'd listened to his stories 
I wonder if we spent some time reflecting on how our relationship with Jesus can develop and grow. Would we come to a place where we sat at the feet of our Lord? Would, would we have a notion that we could let him put his hand on our shoulder or look us in the face? Would we see him smile or react as we chatter with him about our day's succession, or successes or failures? How many of us truly look at the Lord Jesus and time spent in prayer, not as business, but time spent with the one who loves us? I believe that we need to understand more about the way he loves us, firstly on that human fatherly level and then on that divine and wondrous and considered and moral all-embracing level that enables us to come to him with confidence and cry, Abba, Daddy. And Jesus' love for Lazarus put himself and his own disciples at risk because his love brought him to a place of danger where his enemies plotted his downfall. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. How wonderful that is. The love of a shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. We must never forget and never be content with any other kind of love. Well, <clears throat> I hope in my rambling way I've been able to ex explain something of this revealed love of the Lord Jesus that he has for this family, for Mary, Martha and Lazarus. I hope that you also have been led to a, a sense of Jesus' true love for you, both divine and fatherly in all of uh, in all of its dimensions a love that we really rarely uh, enjoy in this world but which is in many ways reflected by our human relationships but remember this the Lord Jesus was capable of uh, showing his divinity and yet in the first part of the story we see an extremely human side of the Lord Jesus. And then things happen that are unexpected to a family in grief. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is verse 17. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know you'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. There are times in our grief and sadness that we need to understand that Jesus is greater all the suffering and all the sadness in the world.
I don't know if you've ever looked at a situation that just seems catastrophic and without remedy. And please excuse this one because it's not uh, it's not very serious. But I've had many cars that have come to a catastrophic point in their existence. And uh, I've come to fear taking them into the mechanics and just watch him shake his head or... Uh, have a concerned smile that says something like well I'm afraid it's bad news um, there's like an Victorian inevitability about it you know this is going to hurt cars are nothing in comparison to the finality of death of human death Paul talks about being surrounded by death on every side and from Genesis chapter 3 we're reminded that man is born to death in Romans 3, this is explained. The wages of sin is death. So death and sin are connected. We know the utter de devastation that death can leave in our lives. I watched, and somewhat at a distance, but I visited him in his, in his final days. But I watched as my own father died. And his bodily condition was very poor. And his death, in some ways, was a release, you know, People say things like, oh, he's gone to a better place and so on. And he has, thank God. But the finality of, um, of placing him in the ground and of knowing that we wouldn't see each other again on this earth, this was very strange and very sad. And death has a way of changing the way we look, I suppose, at, at, at life. But it's so final. If mankind is born with the finality of death, with the taint of death and the inevitability of it, it's strange how much it affects us. In our own personal stories, we say things like, where were you when JFK died or Elvis or John Lennon or David Bowie? Uh, and we're nervous about going through death as well, aren't we? We, we fear it and f for good reason sometimes because of the pain and the anguish that there is. Uh, in passing from life to death. And the Bible talks about a second death, and this is truly a final death. Paul is clear about having a body of death all wrapped up in sin. Death is where everything has gone wrong, and it's the most serious junction point in our lives. It's the place where everything is laid bare. Even the atheists talk about death, trying to help people face up to the inevitability of dying. Sir Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons says, Death comes to us all. And now with the latest threat to our world health, we have to stare the potential of death through uh, COVID-19 with a, with a wary eye. Lazarus was dead. Two days in the grave had passed before the Saviour returned to his house. The entrance to his grave was covered by a stone. We can imagine that Martha, in the anger stage of bereavement, blamed Jesus for not being there for the family when Lazarus died. And when she uses the word if in verse 21, it is a word laden with blame. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
and some of us never get over the anger and blame that comes with bereavement. We say, if God is in control, why couldn't he have controlled the outcome? If he had been around, wouldn't things have turned out differently? And this is a killing thought, and it's one which supposes that God simply doesn't care. He has his own reasons. We have to lump the consequences. And even the great people of the Bible are capable of shouting, How long, O Lord, will you abandon me forever? Because blame is so often about abandonment, about being left behind, about isolation. Where was God when this happened? He must have abandoned me. And Jesus walks into that sense of blame and anger with love in his heart when everything had seemed to go wrong. He loved them in a way that brought them back to their house in a time of grief. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord Jesus. And this gives hope even in the 21st century because resurrection is triumph over the grave. Resurrection is life after death. Resurrection is re-lifing someone, bringing them back from the dead, pouring breath into the collapsed body. Resurrection is the final victory. In fact, the Bible celebrates the resurrection in many places with words like, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And Jesus is not only the bringer of resurrection, but he is the resurrection and the life. How holy is that thought? The one thing that defeats all of us is defeated for us in Jesus. Now where does that leave us? Firstly, we have an assurance that as Christian people, we will rise again from the dead. We will ascend. We will live forever. We will see Jesus as he is and we will be like him. Hallelujah. Secondly, however bleak, however sad, however bereft, or washed up our life is, we can have hope here on earth. God is the God of new beginnings and he is life. This means that we can regard Jesus not only as the promise of life after death, which would make us sturdy and faithful, but perhaps sometimes with gritted teeth, but he's also life itself and that means we can live. And fourthly, it means we can't really be beaten. If God be for us, who can be against us? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's a footnote to this story. It's from John chapter 12. Martha serves Jesus. Mary worships Jesus, prophetically anointing him with nard perfume. And Lazarus, well, he becomes identified with Jesus so that Jesus' enemies want to put him to death again. When will the enemies of the cross realise they're already beaten? Well, may God give us grace in these days, in his name and for his glory. Amen. Jesus loves to his own risk. Verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Now, make no mistake, Jesus did demonstrate his divinity to people in many ways. In John 5, he heals a crippled man at the pool at Bethesda, and the Pharisees hated him some more for this act because he healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus fuels their fire by referring to the work, to this work, 
as the work that his father is doing, his father God, whose name is so holy that the Jews dare not even to this day utter it. And so when he calls God his father, he speaks of his own divinity. Truly, truly, he says, and there's that double amen showing his authority and the gravity of his words that we need to listen to them. Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And that's from John 5. In effect, he's saying that he needs to be in tune with God to act, which sounds like he is um, not equating himself with God. He's also saying that he and God are in this together as one. So Jesus is perfectly capable of talking about his own divinity. And we must remember that with those words, truly, truly, or amen and amen. Now... The reasons that the Pharisees hated Jesus are clear. Uh, for one thing, he was likely to stir things up with the Romans, so that the province of Palestine would have to be subdued. And for another thing, he was leading people astray from the established religious leadership where they derived their power. And so, when he continued in his healing ministry, in John chapter 9, by healing a man born blind, the confrontation was ramped up. It was really on the cards now. Now in John chapter 9, we read that Jesus again shows his divinity by healing a man who's born blind. Think about it. Even if you replace, and modern science can do some of these things, but even if you replace the lens or reattach the retina, and we've heard about this in recent days, and I know um, my own mother-in-law was uh, unsighted in one of her eyes for many years until she had some um, retinal uh, replacement work. But even when that was perfectly completed... And the nerve endings were all knitted back together again. She was unable to see because her brain hadn't learned to unscramble the messages from her um, ocular nerve or the, the neurons around her eye. And so to heal the man born blind who'd never seen anything, who'd been unable uh, to unscramble by the use of his eyes, unscramble the signals that his eyes were getting. For him to be able to see so completely is amazing, and it is divine. <clears throat> but Jesus doesn't only heal his eyes physically, he also heals his spiritual eyes, and he gives him to, he enables him to see spiritually if we pause for a moment there have we ever given up on someone who seems to have been born blind uh, someone who is so far from 
thinking about Jesus in the Gospel, who finds it so difficult to engage spiritually? Have we ever given up on them and forgotten that Jesus, in his divine nature, he is the light who came into the world, the light of the world. He is able to awaken people spiritually. Well, <clears throat> he does, and he does it with this man born blind. And it's interesting because the man born blind is then kind of hounded by the authorities. His, first of all, his parents are attacked, and how often that happens as well, that our families are attacked. But then he has to give account of himself to the Pharisees. And instead of being timorous and, um, and sort of uh, humble about this, he looks them, and we presume that he looks them in the eye, and he says, oh, do you want to follow this man too? Do you want to be his disciple? This enrages the Pharisees. They are completely beyond themselves with anger about this. But uh, when they accuse him, who are you to uh, speak of these things? It's all in uh, John chapter 9, by the way. Um, he says... We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And then these wonderful lines, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Just let those words sink for a moment. Here is someone who is essentially a kind of beggar in society, extremely dependent, facing up to the religious authorities of the day who are connected to the Roman rulers and saying it is impossible that this could happen unless it was the agency of God. Well, when the man's thrown out by the Pharisees, Jesus meets the man again, and this time he accepts the man's worship. Jesus then is the son of man, but he's also the son of God, and he accepts our worship. And when we understand Jesus, we see him as he is, the chosen, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God and Son of Man. And we could talk some more about the idea of the Son of Man, um, but we won't for today. But for your reference, probably look at uh, Daniel chapter 7. What am I trying to do here to establish that the Lord Jesus is completely and utterly capable of revealing himself as the divine Son of God, sent by God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Healer, the King of all kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's capable of this, but he does not always operate in, in this way of, of revealing his divinity, certainly not straight away. And if we come back to that moment in Bethany, where the Lord, or 
sorry, away from Bethany, where it's revealed that Lazarus has been dead and the Lord Jesus turns his face to Bethany and comes uh, back to this house of the people that he loves. We find this, that in his capacity as the word made flesh, in his capacity as a man born of woman, in his capacity as the son of man, we see an insight into his own uh, feelings and emotions. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus.